<laughs> the shadow knows. This is Mark with Media Riot, coming to you from my secret lair in Chicago. On this episode, we'll take a look at Kick-Ass 2, a listen to Kenny Chesney's latest album, and in theater, a look at the play Detroit. Now let's suit up in your cape and cowl, and let's take to the streets. Again? What do you want me to do? Hit me. You're a 15 year old. Oh. What the hell? Act like a bitch, get slapped like a bitch. Oh, God. Oh, take your tampon out, Dave. They may wear costumes, but it isn't Halloween. They're real life superheroes. Me and Hit Girl. We're training every day. And there were more and more people joining us every night. Colonel Stars and Stripes reporting for duty. And try to have fun. Otherwise, what's the point? A world full of superheroes, huh? Where do they get a load of me? In theaters now is Kick-Ass 2, the sequel to Gone with the Wind. Nah, just kidding. It's a sequel to 2010's Kick-Ass. Kick-Ass, adapted from the comic book of the same name, tells a story of ordinary teenager Dave Lewiski, who one day decides to make something of himself. So he tries to make himself a superhero, with some green and yellow diving suit and two nightsticks. Although instead of kicking ass, he gets his ass kicked. And after a couple of months of recuperating, out he goes again. That's what made the first Kick-Ass so appealing. The lead character so wanted to do something good, no matter what the cost. It was darkly funny and kind of realistic in what would happen if, today, without any training, you decided, I'm Batman, and headed out and tried to leap tall buildings in a single bound and fight crime. More than likely, you'd fall and or get your ass kicked or worse. Dave, a.k.a. Kick-Ass, played by Aaron Johnson, perfectly captured the awkward teenage need to belong to something, even if it meant nerve damage. Luckily for Kick-Ass, he meets up with professional vigilantes Big Daddy, a.k.a. Damon McCready, former cop, played by Nicolas Cage, and his 11-year-old sidekick and kinda psychotic daughter Mindy, a.k.a. Hit Girl, played by Chloe Grace Moritz. They show Kick-Ass how to kick ass as a take on mobster Frank D'Amico, 
played by Mark Strong, who I'm not sure, but I think is enjoying being typecasted as the villain. Seriously, everything he shows up in, he ends up playing the bad guy. Also, Frank is idolized by his son, McLovin himself, Christopher Mintz-Plass, as Chris, a.k.a. Red Mist. Kick-Ass 1 was one of those breath-of-fresh-air-into-the-genre type movies. Kick-Ass was funny and thrillingly violent, kind of like uh, Goodfellas or The Wild Bunch. This, uh, this is a movie that truly balanced the line between trying to be realistic and giving you the comic book action you wanted. There was a big hubbub over the foul language used by 11-year-old Chloe, which was nowhere as shocking as how she easily and indiscriminately killed people. But it was okay, because, as Arnold Schwarzenegger so famously said in his film, True Lies, when asked if he killed people, he replied, Yeah, but they were all bad guys. I'd rather have a little kid swearing than one who seems to enjoy killing people, even if they were bad guys. But this is Kick-Ass's story, not Hit-Girl's. So even with teaming up and all their training, Big Daddy gets off, but Hit-Girl and Kick-Ass get back at Demetrio by shooting him with a rocket launcher, which pushes his son Chris over the edge, who takes over his dad's empire. Kick-Ass 2 picks up right where Kick-Ass 1 left off. Mindy is in care of her father's former police partner, Sergeant Marcus Williams, and she is training Kick-Ass into a lean, mean, truly fighting machine. Meanwhile, Chris is trying to avenge his father and become an even more powerful villain than his dad by trying to become a supervillain. Which doesn't really work out, because even with fight training, McLovin will always be McLovin. So he decides his superpower is money, and he sets out to assemble, more like buy, a supervillain army. Meanwhile, in suburbia, Mindy's guardian, Marcus, wants Mindy to keep a promise she made to her father before he died to live a normal life. So Mindy retires hit girl and goes to school, but she, she soon learns that evil villains have their beginnings in high school as cliques. And on the other side of suburbia, Dave wants to continue as kick-ass, even if Mindy doesn't. Even if Mindy does all the saving superheroing, and he lucks out. He has somehow inspired others to join his costume superhero cause, which mostly consists of community service, helping people across the street, blah, 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 and there's, they do a little ass-kicking. That is, until they meet up with Colonel Stars and Stripes, a.k.a. Sal Bertolini, a former mob enforcer turned born-again Christian played by Jim Carrey. He's kind of taken the Nicolas Cage role here. He's a delusional guy, but because he's the adult of the group, that's the reason everyone should follow him. Okay. I'd like to say this quickly. It's nice to see major stars, like Jim Carrey, taking secondary roles and not trying to overshine the lead. It shows why they are major stars through good acting and lets them take chances with roles that a lead role wouldn't. Now, even though Kick-Ass is set in New York City, things start to escalate the Chicago way. He pulls a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. But in Kick-Ass, it's more of a, he pulls a knife, you pull nunchucks. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to your pet shark's tank. That's the Kick-Ass way. That's how you get the motherfucker. Oh, yeah. Chris's uh, super villain alias is the motherfucker. <laughs> to explain it wouldn't be as, as funny as to see how he becomes it on screen. 
In the end, Kick-Ass and Hit-Girl and their superhero team of Justice Forever with heroes like Dr. Gravity, Night Bitch, and Battle Guy <laughs> defeat the motherfucker and his supervillain army, including Black Death, The Tumor, Genghis Carnage, and someone who would probably take it as a compliment to be called one of the baddest bitches on the screen since Faye, since Faye Dunaway's Mommy Dearest, Mother Russia. So pretty much uh, everyone from Kick-Ass 1 returned to Kick-Ass 2, except for director Matthew Vaughn. He went on to direct X-Men First Class, and this is, and this is the weak link in Kick-Ass 2. Kick-Ass 2 suffers from the X-Men 3 Last Stand Syndrome. Now, the first two X-Men were directed by Brian Singer, a very talented director even outside of the comic book genre. And his X-Men 2 stands as the, one of the greatest modern comic book movies, up there with Spider-Man 2, The Dark Knight, and Richard Donner's Superman movies. Uh, Singer didn't direct X-Men 3. He went on to direct his own Superman movie. Journeyman professional hack Brett Ritnier directed X-Men 3. Now, I thought X-Men 3 was good. It didn't reach the levels of X-Men 2, but it brought the series to a satisfying conclusion. And so, and the reason it more or less worked with professional turd polisher Ritnier in control is that Singer had left Ritnier with such well-made films that any director who followed Singer just had to continue what Singer had set up. All he needed to do was show up on set and call action and cut. Now, if they had done X-Men 4 with Ritnier, trust me, there would have been a dramatic drop-off in quality. Matthew Vaughn is similar to Brian Singer. Both got their big breaks with Crimeland movies and showed a real auteur talent for filmmaking. Matthew Vaughn was an obvious choice for Kick-Ass 1. His follow-up to his Crime Land debut, Layer Cake, was adapting Neil Gaiman's Stardust, and Gaiman's material is famously known for being difficult to transfer to screen. And then Vaughn followed up Kick-Ass 1 with that X-Men First Class, which showed that Kick-Ass wasn't a fluke. So, taking over for Vaughn is Jeff Wadlow, who was pretty much at the near level of directing. Wadlow's two films before Kick-Ass 2 were Cry Wolf, a teen slasher film, and Never Back Down, a teen fighting movie. Both are in the low 20s on Rotten Tomatoes' scoring sale. Now, I'm trying to figure out the reasoning in selecting Wadlow. The only superficial thread is that Never Back Down and Kick-Ass 2 have teens fighting. Okay but neither Never Back Down or Cry Wolf showed that Wadlow can handle black comedy, which is the draw of Kick-Ass. Kick-Ass almost makes fun of those nameless teen-fighting movies. Now I'm giving Kick-Ass to two and a half stars. I almost went a little higher, but that might mean I'm approving of Wadlow's direction, which I'm not. Vaughn had just set up such an awesome movie like Singer did with X-Men, that anyone could have shown up and called action and cut. But Vaughn and Singer are more talented than Wadlow and Retinier, and they bring heart and soul to their movies. So if you liked Kick-Ass 1, check out Kick-Ass 2. It does continue the story, and thankfully it's not as depressingly dark as a comic, but it makes me hopeful there will be a Kick-Ass 3 with Vaughn or someone as, as talented as him returning to the director's chair.
The summer is when big-name musicians can make the most money with their big outdoor stage shows. Kenny Chesney, with 30 million records sold, multiple awards, and his 2007 tour, the highest-grossing country tour of that year, yeah, he pretty much has one of the biggest and most anticipated tours of the summer. Now, why might you ask, am I reviewing a Kenny Chesney? Well, this is Media Riot, not punk, metal, pop riot. I want to give a fair shake to all styles, and if I ever figure out how to properly review a classical symphony album, I will bring it to you. Although it's pretty hard to play Mozart mediocre. Either you can or you can't. Now, I didn't go to a Kenny Chesney concert. No, 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 no way, no. (laughs) But I did listen to his latest album, Life on a Rock. Let's take a listen to a track. Well, I come from a little bitty homegrown small town Smoky Mountains, nice place to hang around Moonshine, that's where they make it Put it in a jug, make you wanna get naked But I jumped on a Greyhound bus one night And took it all the way to the end of the line Stepped down in the sun when my feet hit the sand What a long, strange trip I spent my whole And we're back. So, yeah, that was Kenny Chesney. Did it work for you? Because for me, it didn't. Now, I'm not going to give this album a star rating, because it more than likely would be a zero. Kenny Chesney is for a target audience. Either you believe the shit he's peddling, or you don't. And I say he's selling you shit because he's not really writing songs. He's selling a lifestyle. Not a bad lifestyle. It's full of sun and free drinks and girls. But at the end of the album, I thought there might be a sales pitch for Kenny Chesney's Island Timeshare Condos. That part actually bothered me the most. How lazy this album is. The first three tracks are just blatant rip-offs. Pirate Flag is just Tom Petty's Last Dance with Mary Jane. When I See This Bar is Sheryl Crow's If It Makes You Happy. And Spread the Love is just Jammin' by Bob Marley. I don't know if it's intentional or unintentional, these songs he covers are so famous and still played. Does he care? They're more or less that his songs are more or less ripoffs. The rest of the, the rest of the album is full of slower tempoed ballads, and the last song, "Happy on the Hay Now," a song for Christy, a song about a friend of his who passed away, is very nice. But like the other slow tempo songs, they were lulling me to sleep. They were actually bordering on just plain old boring, actually. Now, most people say they like all music except for such and such, and when people say they like all kinds of music except for country, I'm assuming they mean this kind of country. And by this kind of country, I mean radio pop country. 
pretty much in the late pretty much since the late 70s and early 80s when Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton started to have crossover success with their singles and Garth Brooks in the 90s lassoed rock on the country modern pop country has moved away from Johnny Cash, Loretta Lynn and Willie Nelson to what it is today. And today that sound is actually more of a pop rock sound. It's as if say John Bon Jovi sang with a twang. You'd almost have a country album. Wait, Actually, Bon Jovi did record a country album, Lost Highway, and it hit number one on the country album charts. While I was listening to Kenny Chesney, I also took a listen to Brad Paisley, Keith Urban, and Carrie Underwood. Take away the cowboy hats and slight twang, and you have Daughtry, Shinedown, or Katy Perry. It's like modern country radio stars have only two talents, sing with a slight twang, and make you believe their cowboy or cowgirl facade. That's why you can see a lot of people who enjoy Kenny Chesney easily move over to, say, Bon Jovi or The Wanted. Now, I'll give Chesney this. He has a nice, strong, tenor singing voice that stands out, and his band is mostly competent. But I'm not buying the Sandy Beaches, rum, and girls lifestyle he's selling because it's overloaded with cheese. Even when just chillin', I like my music not to be lazy. But I do want to finish the review on this note. I do think there is still good pop country. I like the Dixie Chicks, especially their Rick Rubin-produced album, Taking the Long Way. And I'm serious about this one, Steve Martin and the Steve Canyon Rangers. It was one of the best concerts I've ever heard, talented musicians, and just plain old fun. What I'm alluding to here is that for good modern country, you might want to take a listen to modern bluegrass. If you want to turn off your mind and drink from a yard glass, go listen to Kenny Jovi, or wait, was that Bon Chesney? Oh, and Alt Country, that has a strong bluegrass lineage, but we can talk about that at a later time. Detroit has been in the news lately, and sadly, not for good reasons. Detroit, home of the car industry, Motown Records, Rabbit Sports fans, and Youpers, is the largest U.S. city to file for bankruptcy. The storied city's decline was slow and complex. The play Detroit by Lisa D'Amour covers... um, nothing about that. Miss Diamore's play covers absolutely nothing related to Detroit. The only thing it has in common with Detroit is the title of the play. Detroit, the play, follows the story of middle-aged Mary and Ben. Ben has lost his job as a bank loan officer, but spends all day saying he's developing a web-based business. Next door to them moves a younger couple, Sharon and Kenny. They rent the house, or so they say. They quickly become friends, the girls at one point plan a camping trip that never happens, and the men at one point discuss a boys' night out at a strip club. It's obvious Mary and Ben want to be 
or at least be friends with, younger Sharon and Kenny. Sharon and Kenny are starting off seemingly fresh and happy as a couple, even though they met in rehab. And, but after a while, it's obvious they're squatters in the house they live in. But hey man, with the way the economy is, Sharon and Kenny's lighter living sounds good. Throughout the play, truths are revealed, mostly with the help of alcohol, friendships go a little too far, and an awkward ending of a wannabe orgy-slash-rave thing, which leads to the burning down of a house. So that's about Detroit, right? No. No, it's not. I saw the debut of the play at Chicago Steppenwolf Theater, with Laurie Metcalf, known for her role as Jackie on the sitcom Roseanne, as the character of Mary. She was great. Actually, I will say this of all the actors. They were great. In a play that isn't, though. I was very interested in seeing a play called Detroit. I lived in the suburbs of Detroit for many years and still go back. I love Chicago, but Detroit holds a special place in my heart. And one of the most important things you learn about Detroit, especially those who grew up in the Detroit area, is that Detroit may slowly be becoming a monumental shithole that you only make quick trips to and then head home to the burbs, but you know what? It's their monumental shithole. And you can't talk smack about it, or you'll face a Detroit rage as intense as a fistfight breaking out on the ice at Joe Lewis during a Red Wings game. Hmm. You know what? My description of life in Detroit is more true than Miss Diamore's entire play. Now, the synopsis I gave of Miss Diamore's play sounds generic because the play is generic. Miss Diamore's play was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, which just shocks the hell out of me. Her play was almost put next to past winners like Cat in a Hot Tin Roof, Glengarry, Glen Ross, and A Streetcar Named Desire. Uh, say what? Mm. Because the only thing I'm giving Misty Moore's uh, Detroit play is zero stars. Now, her play should have been called Any Fucking Where. Wait, that title is too interesting. How about Springfield or Suburb USA? That would have been better because with, a, with such a generic story, they deserve a generic title. I just want to say this, though. The Zero Stars does not apply to the actors. They worked hard to make their generic characters seem interesting. Miss Moore has said that she chose the title Detroit because it encapsulates the decline of the American suburban dream. Okay, first, Detroit is a city, not a suburb. And if you're going to call your play Detroit, can you please insert some Detroit personality into it? Hmm. Here's an easy way to show you're in Michigan. If you put four people from Michigan together in a room, within 10 minutes, they will be talking about hockey. I shit you not. Detroit nationally is known as Motown, but it has a second nickname, Hockey Town USA. Their love of hockey is only matched by their love of cars. None of this, mind you, comes up in the play. Now, Detroit the play is competently written, and the characters have arcs and some characterization, Mary's a closet drinker, Kenny and Sharon are recovering drug addicts, but because of its lack of regional flavor, this play could have taken place anywhere, anytime. Oh, wait, wait. The audience is supposed to be able to deduce the time frame the play takes in. It's after the 2008 financial meltdown, because Ben lost his job. See? That means it has to take place after the 2008 financial meltdown because that's the only time people ever lost their jobs was after the 2008 financial meltdown, right? 
Yeah, the, the 2008 financial meltdown is never specifically mentioned throughout the play. I was told this after the play during a Q&A session. Detroit the play is an insult to, the, to, de, to Detroit the city. There are plays to be written about Detroit, and there are plays to be written about the effects of the 2008 financial meltdown, but neither is, are properly discussed or portrayed in this film. How the 2008 financial meltdown affected America differed from city to city. What brought, what brought Detroit to its knees was different from how, say, Las Vegas or Cleveland or New York was affected. In researching Ms. Moore, I saw that she got her MFA from the University of Texas at Austin and resides between New Orleans and Brooklyn. Ms. Moore, have you ever been to Detroit, let alone Michigan? Another person rewriting Who is Afraid of Virginia Woolf for the upteenth time, but calling it Detroit is not what the theater world needs. I can't honestly tell if Miss Diamore has real talent. She obviously doesn't care about the subject she's writing about to actually research it and create a new, vivid, personal piece of work that will shine a light on a specific subject. I'm sad and shocked to learn that her play has already been performed in the Detroit area. Why? Did you guys even read it before agreeing to perform it? I'm not surprised, though, there was an off-Broadway performance. This play attracts, at least at the performance I was at, for its audience, the well-off liberal elitist who are amazed that not everyone lives like they do, and that these supposed good-hearted rich people know how to fix a lower-income bracket's woes by, you know, building a wine bar and a world music cafe, then they drive off in their Mercedes. Thanks, guys. Miss Diamore, I will gladly take you on a driving tour of Detroit in this area. We'll have some Fago, eat some Mackinac Island fudge, slice a little Caesars. We'll buy you a Red Wings jersey and listen to some Detroit electronic music. Maybe even stop over in Windsor. That, Miss Diamore, is Detroit, not your Detroit. Hey there, really quickly, just want to throw in my two cents. I'm actually okay with Ben Affleck being cast as Batman. I think he'll be fine. Is he the best? Eh. Is he the worst? No. You know, but hey, I actually kind of like Daredevil. I thought it was okay. Affleck has matured as a uh, filmmaker. He's shown he knows how to pick good material. He can direct good material. His acting has improved kind of lost some of that smugness and with uh christopher nolan and Zack snyder still in control of this yeah those guys know comic books so they must see something in him so i'm gonna trust them and then also the other thing with all hollywood news don't 100 percent believe it until you see that first trailer okay they have to film it that's still a long way off 
until you see a trailer. Ben could drop out real soon. You never know. So, in the end, eh, yeah, it's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm fine with it. Hey everyone, thank you for downloading or streaming this episode of Meteor Riot. Meteor Riot is sponsored by The Shadow Stain Remover. Who knows what dirt lurks in the heart of your carpet? The Shadow Stain Remover knows. Yeah, times have been a little tough for The Shadow. He's had to sell out a little bit. Still a pretty cool superhero though. The Shadow Stain Remover. Available at your local grocer and secret layers. Meteor Ride is an ill noise production, and uh, we'll see you next time. Bye now.